bright, electric. I was going to say power sucking and hot. Damn right. Did you turn the the ACs off? <laughs> we got to get a good uh, good noise floor for this podcast. Blah, blah, blah. Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid manhole on the wall. Cinematic Cinematic community. Tell people not to swear the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been revoked. That's right. We spend 90 minutes talking about nothing but Back to the Future. Wait. Oh, wait a minute. That's not true. Lewis didn't let me talk about Back to the Future for 90 minutes. It's right the fact that I wanted to. No, of course not. When we have a world-class cinematographer like Dean Cundy in here. I wanted to talk about a time-traveling DeLorean. Ugh. I wanted to talk about one of the biggest movies ever made, Jurassic Park, how it was shot in VistaVision, all that good stuff. He's done a lot of movies with a lot of great theme songs. <laughs> That's the quality we gauge our, our, our guests on these days, is how mm. many important theme how songs. How many John Williams scored movies have you worked on? That should be our new opening, opening line with everybody. And if the answer is zero, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> That's so not true. Get out. <laughs> there are people in line behind you. Oh, we had a great time. We had a great time. Don't stop there. If you're going to do the theme music to Back to the Future, you better you better make sure to give, give the audience what they want. Where's da, that? Na, na. There's the hook. <laughs> <laughs> so we sat down with Dean Cundy, a world-class cinematographer who has done some of the most important and fun movies of our childhoods, uh, Back to the Future being one of them. Dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And, uh, and uh, Jurassic Park being one of mine. <laughs> and then, of course, the, uh, the ever-present Big Trouble in Little China. Big trouble. Big trouble. Little China. Yeah, for sure. Big trouble. Sung by one John Carpenter, the director of the film, who had his own band. Yeah. Well, we talk about all of that, plus a bunch of other amazing experiences, and we get some great insight from one Dean Cundy. So, Houston, we have a main vault under bus A. We have a main vault under bus B. She's shaking apart. <laughs> so we hope you can enjoy this. Uh, <laughs> so we all part there, dude. <laughs> Get everyone into the lamb. The command module won't won't be surviving much longer. He discusses doing some interstellar photography, as it were, some zero G photography. On the vomit comet. And uh, we had a great time. So if you uh, are tuning into this podcast now, we hope you love Back to the Future. We hope you love Apollo thirteen. <laughs> And Jurassic Park, and uh, that you love this podcast. So please, definitely check us out on all those fabulous social media networks, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and uh, check us out on the site. Give us five stars on iTunes and uh, leave us a little rating. We hope you are enjoying all the awesomeness that we're trying to kick out weekly, and uh, we'll catch you on the other side. Enjoy, everybody.
we'd like to welcome everybody to the show. Um, thank you, Mr. Cundy, for sitting down with us and competing with the FIFA World Cup quarterfinals going on across the street. Ah, well, it's my pleasure. We, we definitely like to talk a bit of movie history and a lot of things that have happened over the years. You've watched the technology transfer and change as it has. But let's talk to you a little bit about where you got started and how this all came to be. Well, um, I'd been interested in film ever since I was a kid. I was maybe like 12 years old. My mother would take myself and a couple friends to the Saturday uh, matinee in the local theater back in the days when they had film and uh, back in the days when it was safe to do that and you weren't a bad parent for leaving your kid. And um, so I would, uh, you know, go and see the matinee, a feature, 10 cartoons, maybe more, and uh, maybe a short film. And... And because I would see these on the big screen and they were aimed at kids, you know, of course, they were fascinating. One, one of my favorites was Disney's 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. It was the, um, um, made in 1955, Jules Verne, and uh, the set design, it won a couple of Academy Awards, one for set design, uh, was fascinating. It was like a world that didn't exist, and how did they do that? And uh, that's what I think fascinated me first uh, is, um, you know, yeah, I like the story and the characters and stuff, but I, I was intrigued by the uh, fact that uh, filmmaking, you, you could create this magical world that didn't exist. You could take an audience on a journey that was impossible. So I was fascinated by that aspect of filmmaking. And uh, so in high school, I decided that um, I wanted to go into film. And um, I thought at first uh, I was going to be a production designer, uh, but I was also fascinated by, by the, you know, the moving image, the cinematography of, of the time. And um, it was much to my mother's chagrin because she had warned me. She said, you know, it, first of all, it's almost impossible to get into film. And secondly, it's even more impossible to succeed. So um, not listening to my mother's advice. It, it's the only time, Mom, I promise that I never listen to you. <laughs> and um, so I, I decided to go to UCLA Film School and, and uh, magically got in. I don't think I would qualify for getting into UCLA Film School now. But, um, and, um, you know, so it, it was the basis of learning all about film, filmmaking, editing, you know, all, all of the aspects of it, which is one of the great things about film school. It exposes you to a lot of uh, different aspects of, of the process. It allows people that are really interested in it to succeed. It gives them a chance to kind of test a whole wide range of experiences and hopefully have enough drive left in you to make a chance at a freelance career when you're out of it. Exactly, yeah. You know, you, they make you do um, a lot of different things, editing and shooting and writing and all. So you, you get an understanding of the whole process. Um, you know, there's something to be said moving up through the ranks. If you can get a job on a camera crew, uh, film loading and then being a second assistant and then a first assistant and operator and so forth. But, but the, the thing about film school is it gives you a chance to explore, you know, the areas that intrigue you the most. And it also gives you a chance to make a couple of films, you know, which is obviously the calling card for, for uh, getting uh, any kind of notice or advancement, you know. So the, the ability to uh, not only make a film but be 
obligated, forced to make, you know, at least one or more films, plus working on crews for other people. So it, I think it's a really good all-around um, experience. While there, did, did you have any classmates that uh, you'd have a, form a, a formative relationship with later <laughs> in your career? They'd come back? Actually, um, yeah, there, you know, there's not that many guys from my class. Um, the year or two before, there were these guys, uh, Francis Coppola, I think you've heard of him, I'm assuming, yeah. And um, I believe there was a young man named George Lucas who was also in his class. Yes, yeah, well, he was, uh, George was at USC. Oh, yes. Uh, the rival, rival school, so I, you know, we, we really don't talk about this. Oh, I apologize. <laughs> Anyway, the, um, um, you know, the people that I dealt with, actually, there were two guys who made a couple of student films in my class, and they had, uh, you know, what, they wanted me to work on it, and I had done some makeup in high school and stuff like that. So I, I was the makeup artist for their student films. And um, then, just as we graduated, they had gone to Roger Corman, and uh, convinced him to let them make a movie. And um, it was, as, it, as, as the times were, um, an exploitation film about uh, motorcycle gangs. You know, Hell's Angels were a hot topic for a little while. And um, so when they uh, uh, were given the go-ahead to make this film, they very wisely hired as many of their UCLA friends as possible so that we'd all have a an opportunity, you know, to, to work on a film. And uh, the job of cinematography, which is what I had started to pursue at that point, uh, was taken up. So uh, I said, well, I've done makeup on your films. Why don't I do that? So I, I did makeup on, on this uh, film, uh, Naked Angels. And um, after that, uh, Roger uh, called me up like the week after we wrapped, and he said, I'm... Uh, I'm directing a film. Would you like to do makeup on it? And I thought, hey, that's pretty cool. Now Roger Corman calls me directly at home, asks me to work on a movie, and it's only been a week since I finished my... This, this is going to be really, really easy. People are just going to be calling me. So I, I did that. I, uh, the film was gas. <laughs> yeah. A lot of S's on it. So I, I did the makeup and, um, you know, on some... People who were sort of up-and-coming actors, uh, Ben Vereen and Talia Shire, who was Coppola's uh, sister, oh, a couple of other folks, um, Cindy Williams. And um, so after that, um, I wrapped and I went home and I said, okay, um, I'll just sit here by the phone. And somebody's going <laughs> to... Another gonna, Roger Corman will clearly yeah, call me. <laughs> absolutely. I'm going to get, uh, you know, <clears throat> and this time I'm going to hold out for shooting. So... I sat there by the phone, and then I sat, and, and then I sat some more, and, um, you know, a couple of weeks went by, and then the reality struck that uh, I was actually going to have to go out and drum up some business. So I, I started going out, and I took any job I could find, and which is the advice I give film students. Take any job you can find, no matter how seemingly small or demeaning, because so much of your beginning work is about networking as much as it is um, having something to show as, a, as an example or credit. So uh, I, um, I took uh, all kinds of jobs, uh, a little bit of special effects work, a little bit of, uh, but I, I always 
you know, asked about shooting the third camera or the fourth camera. So I would start to build a reel, and um, eventually, uh, and then I shot a a, a short film for a friend of mine. And um, as I built a reel, then I could show it around, and then I started to get some work. While you were at UCLA, you had a very famous cinematographer as an instructor over there, James Wong Ho, who had previously been known for his deep focus uh, cinematography, even years before Greg Toland had just been around. What was that experience like walking into film school and being able to learn from somebody who had clearly been at it a long time? Well, it was a... um it, w- it was the turning point in my deciding exactly what I wanted to do. Um, I had been interested, as I said, in uh, production design, so I had been taking architectural classes, architecture design, graphics, uh, drafting, um, all of that kind of stuff that uh, I thought would be you know, beneficial besides the film experience in being a production designer. And, but I, I kept looking at that camera, and I kept saying, hmm, so I, I photographed a couple of short films, and, and I said, I really like this. And then, uh, then they convinced uh, James Wong Howe to come and, and do a one-semester class, a master class. And I was uh, barely able to get in. It filled up so quickly that I didn't even know about it until, like, the last minute. And, uh, but because it was my last semester, and I... I was given a little priority, so I managed to squeak into the class. <clears throat> One of the the best things that happened to me in film school because um, he he ran the class like uh, he he would if we were actually shooting films. And um, we on the uh, the stage at UCLA, we had built a little three wall set, and um, Hal would come and uh, he would say, "Okay." Today, you're the operator, you're the assistant, you're the gaffer, you're the grip, you're the... And, and we would all be assigned jobs. And um, as we would work, he would say, okay, so now we're going to show how we turn this ordinary room into something just using the lights and camera. And um, so he would say, okay, today it's a seedy hotel room. What would we do to do that? And then he would take us through the thought process. He'd say, okay, let's put a practical lamp on that table over there. This is the bed. And he would lead us through the process. But as he did that, he also expected us to be the crew, uh, as opposed to being really polite when some guy brought the light over and so oh, thank you. He'd say, well, where's the diffusion and the barn doors for that? Yeah. Oh, oh, I, uh, well, go back and get the, you always bring the light. See, everybody, <laughs> you have to always bring the diffusion and, you know, and, and as much as it was about the uh, aesthetics and creativity, it was also about how you function on a crew. So then the next uh, session, it was, I think, every Tuesday, Thursday, um, he would say, okay, now this is an elegant hotel room. How do we do it? Okay, this time you're the gaffer, you're the operator, and, so, and we would design a shot. And um, once again... We would, you know, and, and as we progressed, he didn't have to yell at us for not bringing the diffusion anymore. We had started to realize the protocol, the procedures, and everything. And it was all, all in all, it was one of the best learning experiences I think I've, I've had in, well, even in college. 
get to learn by watching your classmates make mistakes, being being set examples of. <clears throat> yeah, it was it was good, and I I was very careful to always let someone else take the blame. That's something you learn very quickly in this business. Always try to get someone else to take the blame. You know, it's it's the it's the the best way. You know. How do you figure? So be nimble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, always. You know, and a lot of it is the experience of learning how to find uh, fault, intimidate people, um, you know, make sure that uh, they get blamed for your mistakes. Um, That's the key to success in Hollywood. This this is great advice. I Uh, love every bit of this. Well, this is the advice that you don't often get in uh, film school. Actually, that's one of the things I, I talk to film students about also is that um, film school will teach you about the camera and the lenses exposure. It'll teach you how much light comes out of a 2K. It'll teach you... To bring the diffusion with the lights. Yeah, bring, be sure you bring the diffusion with the lights. Um, and uh, how to cut, you know, in those days it was actually film. It was pieces of film we'd stick together physically with a piece of tape. Um, th- there are, as we were saying at an ASC meeting last night, there are so many um, editors now, young editors especially, who never actually put the film together physically and ran it. Um, now it's not seen as film, but it is a, some kind of a computer digital file with images on it. So it's, we, we learned all of this stuff. Well, as I, as I caution film students, I say, you know, you'll learn all of this and you'll... You'll develop an idea, a sense of, you know, your creativity and your worth and your skills and what area you are best at, editing or whatever. But what, what they don't teach you in film school, it's important, is, is about the psychodrama of actually working on a film, on a set. All of the personalities, you know, you, you hopefully become very good at the, uh, the mechanics <clears throat> Social yeah. mechanics. Yeah, well, we've the, had these sometimes referred to as the politics <clears throat> on set. Yeah, the politics is is probably the cleaned up phrase, um, and because it can get uh, pretty dirty, as it probably does in politics, uh, you know. But um, with uh, you know, you, the, you don't really learn uh, dealing with egos and and people who actually really do try to blame you or everybody else, you know, instead of, instead of, you know, you might say, hey, this is a creative process and we're all going to work together to, and, and you, you're shocked to find out that there are people with, with other motivations. They, they want to try to make you look bad so that they can look good in their mind. And, um, you know, fortunately, most of that's transparent uh, to anybody who's worked a while. They, they realize that, you know, that this guy is just covering himself or whatever. So um, learning the, the psychodrama of, of working on a set, dealing with egos, uh, how do you convince someone of a good idea and make them think it was theirs, you know, that all of that kind of stuff is, is something that um, you, you end up having to pay close attention to when you start working. Not to mention for all the craft workers that are out there, you know, less creatively intentioned, what it's like to make sure that you're showing up 15 to 30 minutes early every day, what it's like to work around people for 14 hours and still have them like you at the end of the day. 
you know, things like that, that you don't learn that in film school. You're no, right. No, it's, it's uh, and, and that's one of the things I, uh, I also caution. I've been to, I, I don't know how many uh, film classes and, and watched them work and all. And I think that um, w- one of the things that a good instructor, I have a friend who teaches in North Carolina, um, School of the Arts, teaches film. And his, his procedure is to make sure people understand how a set functions or should. Because a lot of times film students, uh, they're all sort of equally learning and they're equally sort of empowered um, in, in their minds about their creativity and so forth. So they'll be working on a set and uh, the camera operator will be setting up the shot and, and the gaffer will be setting up the lights and that's the, the functions that they were given this week. Um, and then uh, one of the grips will come over to the operator and say, because he's interested in cinematography, he'll say, well, I don't think you should frame it like that. Wouldn't it be better if the camera were over here? And, uh, you, you know, you have to say, well, <laughs> as much as that may be true, if you're working as a grip, you have to understand that, you know, you don't go and tell the operator how to do a, to do a shot. Now, there are certainly ways you can you know, work uh, that. And, and if you go to the key grip um, and then he comes and whispers in the DP's ear, whatever, and the suggestion is sort of anonymous, but, you know, is is a good observation, then you can affect. But as a film student, it, there isn't anarchy. There isn't the ability for everybody to comment on the shot and, you know, wait, 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 why are you putting the light over there? Well, because the DP told me, yeah, yeah, but it, it's, don't you think that looks ugly? You know, is is not the uh, way to do it. Most film sets are very militarized, top-down structure. You know who your bosses are. You know who you're reporting to. You know who's reporting to you. You're responsible for your work. There's a division of labor, and it can be very hard to for someone who's never been on a film set before to not you know, stay in their own lane, as it were, make suggestions that really isn't their place to make suggestions. They just know that they, what they need to do is do their job and make sure that, again, at the end of the day, their boss and the people around them all like them and that they're communicating effectively and efficiently, things like that. Yeah, Those- and, and the important thing to understand is that's not being obsequious. It's not being, you know, blind or yes-man because there are ways you can improve and embellish. I, I always encourage any crew I work with to... Never be afraid to come up with a suggestion. Um, it's done, you know, discreetly. You don't stand in front of the actor and say, well, isn't that light going to look awful on her? You know, but, but you, uh, you can go to the gaffer and say, uh, her, her nose shadow, look, she turns that way. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah. I was concentrating that, on this over here. So The backlight's just touching the nose a little bit. Yeah. Maybe we wanna, <laughs> but at exactly. this point, as a veteran, I mean, you're in a teacher mode uh, kind of thing. Your ego is no longer on the line. You no longer have anything to prove. So Ex- Exactly, you know, and that's, that's one of the things that's hard to, to um, teach and learn is that, um, you know, a film company is probably, when it works well, one of the greatest oiled machines ever. It accomplishes so much. And, you know, much to the surprise of, uh, you know, I'll have tourists or family people show up and I'll say, oh, yeah, come on down to the set. And they'll, they'll stand there and they'll say, well, there's two guys over there working, but everyone else is standing around. Why? How? What? And you have to say, well, 
wait till you see what happens when the director yells cut and cut and everybody jumps up and they run and they know what they're doing and people say oh I see why you've got all those people now and and it is a machine that works so well because uh, there's this tremendous parallel work that gets done a lot of people doing a lot of stuff and then it all relaxes and the actor is in the front of the camera and he takes over and when that's done everyone else gets to jump in and contribute again they say uh, working in movies is like two minutes of sheer panic followed by hours of boredom. Yes, pretty much, uh, pretty much like that. Um, although, or the greatest peacetime equivalent of war. Yeah, a little anecdote um, that sort of addresses the the crew thing is uh, on Jurassic Park. We were ready to shoot the last day, and Hurricane Aniki came in. Devastated the island. It destroyed the uh, the the airport. Had palm trees all over it. Um, we were essentially trapped on the island. And about two or three days out from the the hurricane, as we're all just sitting because we couldn't work, the buildings all around were destroyed. Um, so Kathy Kennedy hitched a ride with the Coast Guard um, helicopter to I guess it was to uh, Honolulu, and um, chartered a plane to come in. Now, <clears throat> the airport and most of the island was being run by the military. There was National Guard. There was, uh, you know, Army, I think. Um, everywhere you looked, there were American troops, and they were trying to get the palm trees away, and they were trying to get the airport to run. And... Um, they had apparently just cleared off all of the, the palm trees, and we got a call, uh, grab, gather up all your belongings, come down to the lobby, we're going to off out to the airport. So we did. Loaded it on the, the trucks, uh, went drove out to the airport, and as we pulled up, the military guy, some guy in charge and a couple others, came running forward, said, no, 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 folks, folks, no no civilians here, sorry, sorry. And we said, well, we're, we're going to be leaving. And he said, no, 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 no. Now, this airport is shut down. It's, it's going to be another two days before anything gets started. So you folks won't have any scheduled flights. So, well, we have a charter coming. Oh, no, 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 you don't have a charter. We, we'd have known about that. Uh, and uh, besides, we can't have you civilians you know, mucking around here at the airport. And uh, we said, well, if there's no charters coming in, what is that over there? And he looked down the runway, and here here comes a big jet. And he said, what? Well, how, how do we? And everyone, you know, watched as it landed, it taxied up to the tarmac and shut off its engines. And whoever was in charge, AD probably, uh, said, all right, let's get your stuff. We'll get out there. We'll take care of this. And the military guy said, wait, no, 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 you can't go out there. It's dangerous. It's an airplane. You, you people won't know what to do. And we said, no, no, sir, you don't understand. We're a film company. He said, what has that got to do? Watch this. So picked up our stuff, moved out there. The door came down. The grips and, and electricians and everybody unloaded all the medical supplies, unloaded the doctors and nurses. Nice. Took all of the stuff, <clears throat> moved it to the side, moved all of our... In the space of half an hour, we had unloaded the plane and loaded all our stuff into baggage, and we were ready to go. And the military guy said, that's, that's incredible. We couldn't have done it any better. And 
Probably not. It's almost like you people have cinematic immunity. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <Exactly>. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, that's, that kind of describes how a really good crew works. Everybody knows exactly what they're supposed to do. They know how to do it well. They know how to uh, you know, interact with the other people. They know what the other guy is going to be doing and how he needs help. And it's a, it's a marvelous thing to, to watch and, and understand. When a finely tuned, well-oiled machine gets going and people know how to think ahead, it really sure can save time and save, save money in the long run to make sure that uh, you know, you're not going over into hour 18, you know, because people know how to see things in advance and, and try and nip it in the butt before it becomes a problem. Exactly. Don't and, have people waiting on them. And, and a lot of it is the, the fact that um, you know, the, the crew, when they understand the film, I mean, they, you have to remember, not only have they seen a lot of films, they've seen a lot being made, they've seen a lot of mistakes being made. So they understand um, what happens you know, behind the camera and how to get the most out of a film. And when they, when they appreciate the fact that the director is uh, you know, on top of it, uh, they like the script, the actors understand it, everybody says, oh yeah, I'm going to give 110% to this. And... It shows up because the, some of the best films are the ones that are um, made because of the collaboration of so many people all working towards the same goal. Absolutely. I only have three or 4,000 questions about that dinosaur movie, but we'll get back to that later. You can move <laughs> yeah. on with your question. All right. So I'd like to open up a little dialogue about some of your earlier films that received great acclaim over the years. Maybe we could start with Halloween. Halloween has been noted to have a great use of Steadicam throughout. And at that point in time, by my, by my count, Steadicam had just come onto the market. It was still called the Brown Stabilizer at one point, somewhere between you know, 1975 and 1980. Can we talk a little bit about your use of uh, lighting and Steadicam on Halloween? Sure. I had done maybe 12 low-budget movies before Halloween, uh, most of which... Um, you, know, you know, you'd be very, very hard pressed to find, even in the, you know, in the market of collectors and stuff. Um, Halloween was a, a breakthrough film for a lot of us. Um, John Carpenter. Yeah, certainly. Uh, John and and Deborah and myself and and uh, you know Jamie Lee and and a lot of people who um, worked on it. I th- I think the fact that uh, one of the things that impressed me the most was the fact that uh, um, John wanted to use the camera to tell the story. Now, um, a lot of the films that I had done before, the uh, the director, who was sort of making a, a product for drive-in theaters and foreign distribution and things like that, um, a lot of them would uh, use the camera to record actors talking. And then they'd use the camera to record the car blowing up. (laughs) And uh, John, I was immediately impressed by the fact that John wanted to use the camera as the audience, visual storytelling. And that was what I had always wanted to do. And that's what I had been sort of trying to develop, you know, in some of these earlier films. So um, it... It was a great opportunity for us to sort of embellish each other's ideas and all. And um, John clearly had the vision, and and by understanding it, I was able to, um, you know, 
amplify whatever he wanted to do. And so it became a very, um, very rewarding experience. Now, the, the Steadicam um, had been used for one or two shots in various movies. Uh, Bound for Glory, there was a famous shot where the, um, the camera came down off the crane. The guy stepped off the crane and followed uh, David Carradine through the crowd and so forth. But they were typically one-off shots. And um, John and I had said, well, why not, why not use it more? It's such a great, fluid way to move the camera and, consequently, the audience through the environment, through the story. And um, so starting with the opening shot, which is, um, you know, still remembered, um, which uh, was, was a great uh, dedication on John's part and ours, um, because he, he knew the opening shot was what's going to grab the audience's attention, and he wanted to do something with it. And uh, so we worked out this shot, and we rehearsed it all day. We lit it all day, worked out the choreography because the guys had to move the lights when the camera came into the room again and that kind of thing. So we, uh, we, we worked all day and then shot the thing at night, all night. And my camera operator, Ray Stella, and I traded off um, doing the shot. Um, and then um, throughout the rest of the film, we uh, also used it uh, for Michael Myers' point of view, um, that un unsettling, creepy... It's um, definitely most famous for the Michael Myers POV cam usage that you guys were doing. Yeah, and very often when we look at some of these old films, as we will with you know, any film, Jurassic Park and Roger Rabbit, all that were, uh, it's easy to say, oh, well, <laughs> I've seen that before, because just today was there were three commercials and there was something... In, and what you forget is the fact that those films were the very first time that somebody was devising a technique. Um, Jurassic Park used CG for the dinosaurs. Roger Rabbit had the hand-drawn. First time anybody had done photorealistic creatures in the computer was Jurassic Park. Roger Rabbit, um, yes, they'd been doing animation and live-action compositing for a while, but nobody... Well, not the interaction. Yeah, the interaction, the I saw light some... and shadows, the tone matting that gave three-dimensionality. Uh, there was a lot of things that were developed that jumped it ahead. The elaborate set design, like you guys had like a slit that was cut in the floor and a stick that was sticking up for the plates for the uh, waitress tray. And as the, you do the track shaking with that, like the way that you get the physical elements to interact and move around and then combine that with, you know, the fact that it's, you know, a cartoon character that's carrying that tray. So Yeah, the animators did a great job in attaching the, the cartoon characters to the um, live-action elements, the guns that the weasels carried, uh, the tray, as you point out, uh, uh, how Roger reacts to uh, the real environment. Um, you know, there there are a lot of things like that that, uh, um, you know, hadn't been done before. And, yeah. and the animators, you know, really mm. were up to the, uh, to the job of taking it the next step. Well, since we opened up this can of worms, how did it change your process? If you're shooting a scene where two people come into a restaurant and sit down at a table and they're going to have a conversation... The difference between that and two people come into the restaurant and now you're trying to frame in 
a fictitious, you know, future object like a dinosaur being in a scene. And now you've got other people on set trying to explain where this is going to be and where that's going to be and some limitations. How did it change your process from usually it's just you and the director figuring out, all right, we're going to shoot them at this table doing that, as opposed to now a whole new group of visual effects people coming in and saying, well, the dinosaur is going to jump up on this table. And, you know, that that, that changes this, that, and the other thing. Well, I I think that what I learned on you know, a couple of different things, but, but uh, certainly Roger Rabbit to start, uh, was what I call the thought process of uh, if these creatures, if these characters were really here, how would we do the scene? The scene? And, and Zemeckis was very much, um, you know, party to that. And so you would say, well, you know, because one of the things that you sort of learn is that camera operators, the, the really good ones, they compose the frame very pleasingly exactly as the audience would want it. They follow the action, um, you know, so that you're never really aware of the camera operating. The, the composition just seems natural. <clears throat> well, they do that by reacting to what they see. They, they're used to evaluating as the character moves, how should this composition be, and so forth. When there's nothing there, they compose just for what they see. And um, so it, it took a little bit of re- re-educating ourselves to how to do it and leave room for the character, but do it with the proper composition so that when the animator puts them in, the frame doesn't look awkward or ugly. Don't compose it for the live action and then force the animator to put the character in awkwardly. Um, so if we, we used rubber, full-size rubber maquettes. Uh, we had a sculpted, posable, bendable Roger. Uh, we had the posable weasels. We had uh, everything. We didn't have the foam rubber Jessica. I was always disappointed by the fact that <laughs> we didn't have that. But um, that aside, so we would rehearse the scene, and Roger would move around. Uh, Bob Zemeckis would say, well, okay, now, if this was really the scene, the rabbit would come in here, and we would compose for that. Then he'd move over there, and we'd pan with him, and but we'd still keep the other character in frame. And, you know, so we would go through the process. Then we would walk through it with this rubber rabbit. And the animators uh, would be given the space, eventually, to put the character in there. So we would shoot one pass with the rubber character with either myself or Bob uh, manipulating it. And as the dialogue was given, uh, we would move him over here and the operator would follow him. And, and in that process, the operator was also learning how it was going to, in listening to on that line of dialogue, he's going to walk over there, I'll pan over there and so forth. And we would shoot it once like that. And then that would become the reference for the animators. They would look at that take that piece of film, <clears throat> and say, oh, I see. They want him to go over here. They want him to pick up this object. Where, you know, and, and so it was this very collaborative process of saying, if this was character were really here, how would we stage and shoot this scene? And then learning how to compose for that, and then the animators 
then looking at it and saying, oh, I see what I have to do here. And it it uh, worked out. I, I understand that see, one of the things that was interesting is that before we started the film um, and uh, Disney said, well, you know, it'll probably be our our department, our animation department doing this. So uh, we'll have a meeting. And so we, we went and they said, okay, here's how you do it. When you, you have to have a big wide shot and you lock off the camera, don't move it because you got to give the animators a lot of room to move the character around. And also because we paint these on, on cells, you know, painted on the back of the cell, flat paint colors, the lighting needs to be very even. Don't make these characters move in and out of light and shadow. And of course, it's very impo- it's almost impossible for them to actually pick up stuff, so don't worry about that. And when Bob and these I... These sound like terrible things for a yeah. DP to hear. Well, Bob and I are sitting there thinking, well, these are terrible things for a DP to hear. <laughs> <clears throat> and so as we left, we looked at each other and said, well, these are the rules we're going to violate. <laughs> we will not listen. As a matter of fact, we will listen to these rules and then do the opposite. So uh, the uh, the Disney animation folks said, well, yeah, you, you really got to do that. And, you know, so... They, they checked around, and, and um, there were various people whose name came up, Don Bluth and, and various other animators. And then they found this, this crazy Canadian, Richard Williams, who was living in London, doing these commercials where he would animate the backgrounds, and the characters would move, and the camera would move, and all the stuff that we now take for granted in CG, he was doing in pencil and paper animation. So uh, we went to him and said, here's the deal. We want to do this. Do you think you could do stuff with the camera moving? Oh, well, of course. So we shot a test, a little 30-second test, violating all the rules. Starts with Roger at the top of a staircase in an alley. The camera moves and booms down, completely moving perspective, you know, worst kind. Roger walks in and out of some light and shadow in this dark alley, um, meets a guy, uh, handles the trash cans, all, all kinds of things that we weren't supposed to do. And Richard then started, and, and he did this 30-second test. And we looked at it and said, yes, that's it. So we took it to Disney and um, ran it for the uh, animating the people and for... Uh, um, Katzenberg and Eisner and and uh, various other people. And uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg said, hmm, wow, this is very impressive, but it looks expensive. <laughs> and uh, the animation people said, well, yeah, it will be. And uh, Katzenberg said, hmm, all right, let's do it. So they added money to the budget to uh, ha- handle this. The fact that the... This was a very labor-intensive process, uh, frame-by-frame matching of action and camera moves and all kinds of very, very complicated at the time especially. This is almost a duplication of of the story we heard from Bruce Logan about getting Tron off the ground. They had to go shoot a test because Disney Animation said, you can't possibly do this, this is never going to work, and uh, they had to bring it back to Disney, and then Disney said, okay, all right, we'll we'll, we'll try it. Well, and and I think that's one of the great fun things about what we do in this film business is that we get to create this magic, this, these, tell these stories, you know, and everybody 
wants to be told a story since sitting around the campfire. The thing is to how to tell the story effectively. Now, the fun thing is if you can take it to the next level and tell it in a way that hasn't been told before, that intrigues the audience. You know, and again, it's always about the story. It can't be just the whiz-bang stuff. Too many you know, movies now are using all the CG to, to blow things up and transform things and uh, you know, all of that. And, and um, it can't be just that. It's got to be the story and the characters, but embellished by this, this new technology. And, and I think one of my greatest satisfactions of, of this business is having been part of films that you know, do that the ones that do it the first time. And to see, <clears throat> to see that that was n- not only effective for that film, but effective for the entire industry and the storytelling, because now it's like if your commercial doesn't have a moving camera with animated characters and, and uh, you know, if, if your creatures aren't CG creatures interacting with the world, you know, you're, you're nothing. Well... At the time, there wasn't any of that. And now it's sort of like, you know. And, and I guess sort of my satisfaction about a film like Jurassic Park is also that you can look at it now and it still holds up. It's not, you know, uh, what, something that some kid will look at and say, oh, my gosh, that's awful. I can do that on my, uh, my Mac in my mother's basement. But like you said, it needed a brilliant story by Michael Crichton to really... To make it what it was. Exactly. You know, and you need actors who create characters you care about. And, and um, you know, you have, to, you have to make it in a way that it's, that a lot of the storytelling is sort of transparent, you know, because you, you have to just be sucked into it. You know, I, I often point out to film students and audiences the fact that when you go into a theater, you're looking at a, a wall, just a flat wall. There's nothing there, except it happens to be white or maybe silver. And you sit there staring at this wall, and then the moving colored shadows dance across it. And suddenly, you're looking at a a world, characters, people, a story, and you're not looking at a flat wall. You are just sucked into when it's good. The characters, the story, the the environment, the magic, all of that. And if we do the job properly, they are not aware of that. And now they sit at home and they look at their flat, you know, TV and get sucked into the same world. You know, they believe that they are seeing and participating in whatever world you're trying to create for them. It's interesting to hear that you weren't slave to the storyboards. That's why I would have assumed that those kinds of, the early steps for those kind of groundbreaking stories would have been told. It's interesting to hear that there was a lot more spontaneity on set between you and the other departments. Well, I think, as with any creative process, you start from somewhere. We, <clears throat> we did extensive storyboarding on Jurassic Park. So that uh, because we knew we were in uh, in areas that nobody had gone before, and you have to be able to show everybody working on the show the vision. This shot includes a guy in the foreground. It's got a big T Rex in the background. 
there's rain coming down, there's all of these things that somebody's going to have to contribute. And by, uh, by storyboarding, by doing concept paintings, by doing now previs, which is computer-generated simple storytelling, you can uh, get everybody to see the movie before you make it. And they can all add their piece, perform their bit of business, or improve on it. Did you find that your some of your techniques had advanced since you had done, um, say, Big Trouble in Little China or Who Framed Roger Rabbit? Using some of these techniques, had you had really mastered by the time you got to Jurassic Park? And they could be subtle, but I imagine I imagine that you had taken a lot of your experience with either motion control, a lot of these other new technologies, to really bring that to the forefront. Could you elaborate on some of that? Yeah, I think that the um, one one of the things that's important in this business is that you don't <clears throat> you don't just do over again what you did before. Um, most of the time you hope that the next project you're doing is going to be from the standpoint of storytelling, directing the script, uh, someone wanting to do something that's new and different. <clears throat> so you have to have to be a part of that new and different and find ways to you know, not only uh, accomplish whatever they want in the, their vision of it, but also <clears throat> develop technical machinery and techniques and and skills that that can be um, be the next step. <clears throat> and um, so each, I, I I kind of feel that each film builds from the previous one. You know, Roger Rabbit's techniques certainly um, uh, improved Jurassic Park. Um, and uh, the things that I learned in Big Trouble in Little China um, and uh, Back to the Future 2 for motion control and creating multiple characters and all have always, you know, been, been part of the next next film <clears throat> and um, and so doing a, a film like Looney Tunes um, which was animated characters in a live action world really became relatively easy you might say because we had done all of the really heavy lifting uh, previously so now you can go and embellish it and now you can you know if if the director and the production company are <clears throat> confident in what you can do your skills and so forth. Um, hopefully, they will uh, let you embellish, suggest, uh, develop new techniques that will make something either easier, faster, or better. Uh, let's talk about your big, um, your John Carpenter Five, as it were. We talked about Halloween. Uh, that was followed by The Fog, followed by Escape from New York, turning my hometown into a jail. We appreciated that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Thing. <laughs> And, uh, of course, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, Big Trouble in Little China. Uh, tell us a little bit of, about your collaboration with uh, John Carpenter. And well, um, as I said, Halloween was this great revelation for me, this great experience of uh, working with somebody who wanted to use the camera to tell the story, who appreciated um you know, I, so so often on, on some of the films before that, I would say to the director, you know what would be really great? We won't, let's not just sit in a wide shot. 
Why don't we start at the door? We'll dolly back with the character, and as he walks in, we'll pan to reveal the room full of bad guys in this bar. And then we can move with him up to the face of it, and the director would say, well, well you know, sounds like a lot of work. It sounds me. hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah how, how would you do Well, we just lay one little piece of dolly track here, and we'll have the actor come to here, and then we'll go to, well, I, the actor come to, um, I don't know. Well, all right, okay, okay, we'll try it. So you set it up, but the actor, you know, doesn't misses it the first rehearsal because he, you know, didn't know how the dolly was going to move. Then the dolly grip needs to move a little slower, and then as he steps to here, the actor needs to be really over there. And so the director's watching this and saying, see, See, this is just isn't working. I say, well, let's do another take. No, no, no. <laughs> let's uh, let's just do the wide shot, and then we'll do a close up of the guy, and then we'll do a close up of this other guy. Well, pretty soon you're you're doing about six shots. That if you had just taken the time to do this one shot, it would have been more visually effective, but um, <clears throat> probably would have actually saved you a little time. Well, to get a um, a director to understand that it's sometimes hard in the in my early career because we were all brand new at this kind of thing. John understood that immediately, and um, as a result, we were able to, you know, really sort of help each other come up with interesting things. So each film, because there was this understanding that that's what we were going to strive for. We would find something new, something interesting, some, or how, some other way to use the camera. So in each film with John, I, I was able to, to you know, learn some more things, develop some more instincts and reflexes. And, and I think that's, uh, that's the value of, you know, when you work with somebody, you know, as, as creative and, and good as John, but more than once, you know, five times, you get to understand each other and, and also develop, um, you know, down a, a pathway that you both understand where you're going. Um, so you had a close working relationship with John for a very long time. He scores a lot of his own music. Did you ever see his band, the Coupe de Ville's play? Yeah, actually, that was one of the fun things is um, having the Coupe de Ville's at uh, the rap party. Um, mm -hmm. Two or three of the rap parties, uh, John... Um, <clears throat> And uh, Tommy uh, Wallace and Nick and uh, they would uh, perform. And, you know, it was one of those things where you, as a crew, say, oh, I see, yeah, the director and his buddies are going to play at the rap party. <laughs> I, I guess maybe I'll stay. And then you are not only pleasantly surprised, but quite amazed at the fact that these guys actually were really good, you know. And they're all... Filmmakers, they're not musicians, but, you know, or were they musicians who were filmmakers? That's the question. A little bit of both? Probably. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there's that, uh, you know, when you have that creative, those creative sensibilities, you know, they, they, they come out in any of that kind of stuff. For anyone who wants to hear the voice of John Carpenter, if you listen to the Big Trouble in Little China theme song... Uh, that is that is John Carpenter's voice uh, that does the run for that. I watched the music video here not too long ago, uh, which was which was a sight. That's all I play on the Pork Chop Express. <laughs> Why not? Can we talk about Big Trouble in Little China for just a minute? Sure. Some of the effects that were used there. I mean, that was a, a whole 
that was a whole new way uh, for me as a kid to see a whole bunch of different effects go into play. You probably used it all. There were probably, going out on a limb here because I can't remember a specific one, but you probably used mats, maybe some motion control. You had puppets. Uh, there were effects of uh, you know light beams coming out of the mouth and the eyes and things like that. Uh, just a whole bunch of different super creative effects. What was uh, what were some of your approaches going into that? Well, I still look back at it, you know, very fondly, um, and and I don't think it was as big a success as they had hoped at the time. It's, it's um, another one of those cult films that gained a following later. Oh uh, yes, over a period of time, people have come to realize, you know, what oh. what it is we were doing, um, and I don't think the the studio at the time really. You know, got it, and and I think that uh, that disappointed John a lot. Uh, doing a, a studio film and then having having it sort of micromanaged, um, but I think that the uh, the great fun thing about it was the fact that it was just this uh, giant off the wall kind of comic book, without a doubt. And and as such, the 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 environments, the sets, the locations, and actually mostly sets, uh, which was the fun part about it. Uh, the characters, the the storyline, um, but also the visual uh, aspects of it, the um, special effects, the um, the chicanery that we went through to um, <clears throat> create the illusion, uh, it was all for me a great um, great fun. It's a, you know it's sort of like one of, one of the last of the um, it all happens in front of the camera kind of movies. Now, <clears throat> if you were to make the film, uh, now there'd be an awful lot of more computer-generated stuff, and there'd be a lot more things that collapse and blow up and things that morph and that, you know. And um, not not to say it's not a good, um, you know, kind of thing when used properly, but... Um, I assume there was a ton of wire work because the whole film was like people coming in through the ceiling and jumping across the room to kick somebody. and <laughs> we, uh, A lot of wire work. And um, a lot of it was uh, you couldn't do wire removal. Um, now, you know, you'd, you wouldn't be wire, it would be cable. And you'd do all kinds of stuff. And there's a computer, you know, if you look at uh, the, the uh, Spider-Man movies and you realize that um, <clears throat> if it really is a human doing that, and now it's less and less it is. But um, the very first one, um, the wire work was, depending on the fact that they were going to be able to paint the wires out, make them disappear in the computer, um, so that you could, uh, you know, you could put all kinds of wires on these characters and make the human body do impossible things and program all the movements with servo motors and, and all kinds of things into a computer we didn't have that. We didn't have wire removal. We had guys pulling ropes on counterbalanced wires that went to harnesses. Uh, it had to be the smallest wire possible because it was going to be visible in the frame. Um, it, I had to light very carefully to avoid seeing the wires. It, they, they dictated often uh, Were you a lot of things. Managing your backlight heavily, just uh, maybe setting cutters to try and get the monofilament or whatever your wire was from receiving the backlight, but yet keep it on the, the subject, things like that? <clears throat> yeah, it, it was each shot, especially the wire work, you had to evaluate very carefully. Where was the movement going to be? Where, what didn't you want to light? Uh, how do you avoid um, seeing the wires? And backlight is one of those things that uh, 
that uh, you know makes wires show up very quickly. Um, and it was a case of uh, um, you know backgrounds, uh, putting the wires against backgrounds so they would disappear, and uh, having guys um, shadow the the wires but leave the um, uh, people in the clear. Um, it was very, very, very intricate um, process, and um, now it would be less so because you just let them be in the frame. Yeah, sort of a fix-it-in-post approach. Very much a um, fix-it-in-post, yeah. All right. Well, we talked about your Carpenter 5. Let's talk about your Robert Zemecka 6. Mm. Uh, Romancing the Stone, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, Death Becomes Her, and, of course, three glorious Back to the Future films. Thank you so much. Ooh, 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 I've always wanted to say this. Stop the presses. Hold the music. Hold everything. There's too much Dean Cundy to squeeze into one episode. We're breaking it into two episodes. You just heard part one. Part two, even more explosive. Tell us on Lewis. Back to the Future, part one, two, and three. Never heard of it. How about Apollo 13? Never heard of it. Well, it'll be an extra special treat for you if you haven't, because that's what we got next week coming up. Some of the best movies of all time from a photographic standpoint. Those were his John Carpenter years. Now we're going to kill it into his Robert Zemeckis years. Roger Rabbit, Back to the Future. We talk about all that. He gives us a great Apollo 13 story before running out the door. We're going to get it back, I promise. We didn't really get into deep into Jurassic Park or Apollo 13, which was heartbreaking, but there's only so much time, and I had to hit him with Back to the Future questions. You know how it is. It's fair. It's fair. And for everybody checking us out, you can find us at www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Now announcing our episodes are up on SoundCloud. Also, check out our short-form podcast, Cinematic Community Updates. Uh, you can find those in our feeds and at www.cinematiccommunitycast.com. Thanks for checking us out. Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. Find us there. See you next week, everybody. Everybody.